0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Cornell University Press and Brian D. Blankenship's recent publication titled The Burden-Sharing Dilemma, Coercive Diplomacy in U.S. Alliance Politics. Thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nathan Moore. Brian our new books network would like to know more about where the burden sharing dilemma fits in with the rest of your academic career thus far.
1: Well, thank you, Nathan. Uh, thank you for uh, for inviting me on. I'm uh, happy to be here to talk a bit about the about the book. Um, so, to your question about where the book fits in with my research, uh, you know, most of my research is at the intersection of U.S. foreign policy and. The Politics and Military Alliances. So I've done, done a lot of work on when allies reassure each other, uh, you know, reassure each other of their commitment to defend each other. Uh, and a lot of work uh, as well on this issue of burden sharing, with burden sharing being defined in, uh, in defense terms as kind of contributions to, to the collective defense. And so this book represents in some ways the... Culmination of a lot of my uh, existing work on on the issue of burden sharing and alliances, uh, and also the you know in some ways the the, the first step in uh, in in a, in, a, in a larger agenda that goes that goes beyond the book.
0: And what is the thesis of the burden sharing dilemma? And what is the burden sharing dilemma that you refer to in the title? Can you explain more?
1: Absolutely. So the book looks at two questions. First being, when does the U.S. actually encourage its allies to invest more in defending themselves? right? <clears throat> Things like defense spending, building up their own military capabilities. And second, when it does decide to approach its allies, when do its efforts succeed or fail? And so, you know, uh, the book lays out a theory to explain... Both when the U.S. approaches its allies and and when when its efforts, uh, when its efforts work. Now, the reason I call the book the burden sharing dilemma, and what I mean by the burden sharing dilemma, is basically a, a couple things. So, when the United States thinks about approaching its allies and the issue of burden sharing, right, uh, when it thinks about encouraging its allies to do more for themselves, it faces both costs but also benefits in doing so. So start with the benefits. The the benefits are, are, are relatively straightforward. Right? Uh, if your allies do more, then that allows you to potentially do less, right? It allows you to provide military power to the alliance at lower cost for yourself. Right. In you know in a lot of ways, you know, most countries would at least to some extent, like their allies to do more because, you know, the more your allies do, that means you can spend more money on other things, right? Uh, Anything from tax cuts to healthcare to education instead of spending on defense. Now, uh, it's not all upside, though, because burden sharing comes at a cost. And the cost is that the more that you encourage your allies to invest in self-defense, the more independent they become right the uh, and this is especially true in really asymmetric alliances like those of the us right so in, in an asymmetric alliance you have a you have one powerful country uh, you know, in, in in the case of the book the US that has alliances with a lot of countries that are that are weaker than it and typically these alliances are characterized by the following exchange the Really powerful country, provide security for the alliance, and the weaker countries basically agree to, in return, follow its lead in foreign policy, right? Everything from uh, allowing it to position its military forces on their territory to assisting it in its foreign military interventions to just following its lead in the international system. Now, the the, the challenge with burden sharing is that the more you encourage allies to do for themselves, the less likely they're going to be willing to do all those other things for you, right? So if an ally becomes independent, uh, they become more able of saying no to you on a variety of things, right? Whether it's military basing, whether it is, uh, whether it's trade, whether it is, developing their own nuclear program, right? Your leverage as the powerful country depends on your allies, depending on you, and burden sharing cuts against that. And so what the book does is it develops a theory to explain how the United States chooses when it comes, when it faces this dilemma. And the basic idea is that, you know, the, the U.S. will encourage allies when the costs of burden sharing are lower. Uh, and the benefits of burden sharing are higher. So specifically, when U.S. resources are constrained and when the threat environment is more severe, the U.S. is more likely to encourage allies to spend on defense, uh, improve their own military capabilities. Uh, Conversely, when its resources are not constrained or less constrained, and when the threat environment is comparatively benign, uh, you know, it puts less emphasis on encouraging ally, ally burden sharing and instead tends to err on the side of, you know, being okay with allies being dependent on it uh, in exchange for all the other things it gets. Um, now, uh, the, the, the other part of the theory is, uh, focuses on allies' relative size. So when it comes to approaching allies and the issue of burden sharing, the uh, U.S. faces a menu of larger and smaller allies, right? So on the one hand, you have allies that are really big and strong, right? Countries like Germany, Japan. Uh, and on the, other, on the other end of the spectrum, you have much smaller countries, right? Allies like Luxembourg and NATO, Iceland and NATO. Um, th- these days, uh, many recent additions to NATO like North Macedonia, Montenegro, uh, each of these allies offers a, a different combination of risks and benefits when it comes to defense burden sharing. So the smaller, the, the really small allies, right, your Iceland's, your Luxembourg's, they don't have much to contribute, right? Uh, even if they conscripted every every person, spent every dollar of GDP on defense, uh, it wouldn't really be that much in absolute terms, And so you're probably not going to care that much about those allies' defense contributions. You're you're going to seek other things from them. On On the other end of the spectrum, your Germanys, your Japans, you have the opposite problem, right? Those countries are so big that if you encourage them to burden share, there's a real possibility that they could become genuinely independent, and so you have to kind of thread a needle with those allies. And so part of what I argue in the book is that what you're likely to see is that the U.S. approaches allies in the middle the most, right? So your countries that are good sized, but not too big, right? There's kind of a Goldilocks zone in the middle where it's
0: your moderately sized allies who face the most pressure to contribute. If you had to point to one U.S. alliance relationship that could explain them all, what would you choose as an example to share with the new books network or anyone who wanted to know?
1: So I, 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 might, I might cheat here and go with two, but I'll, I'll try to go with one. Uh, so if I had to pick one, it, it would be Japan. Uh, Japan is a case that really illustrates how just how, you know, the, the, that really illustrates what happens when this dilemma is at its most severe. So, you know, Japan, uh, since it became an ally of the U.S. in the in the 1950s, um, it has been one of the U.S.'s largest, most you know, most potentially powerful allies. Uh, and this became you know only more true as time went on, as Japan. Really grew very, very rapidly in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Now, uh, you might expect that that would be, in some sense, welcomed in the U.S. Right? That Japan would uh, that would allow the U.S. to give Japan a bunch of new responsibilities, right? Uh, Particularly in the 1970s, when the U.S. really wanted to in some sense, pulled back uh, under the so-called Nixon Doctrine after the Vietnam War, uh, you know, the, the US position was very explicitly that it wanted allies to do more so that it could do less. Japan seemed like a natural target for this kind of approach. But what actually happened was that, you know, despite sort of talking the talk, uh, the Nixon administration and its, and its successors, didn't really walk the walk all that much on Japanese burden sharing. Right? There, there were really intense deliberations when it came to what the U.S. should ask Japan to do. Ultimately, U.S. policymakers couldn't really come to a, a, a good conclusion. And so they sort of settled with the status quo. They encouraged Japan to spend a bit more on defense, modernize its forces a little bit, but fundamentally not to you know rearm in a big way. And this was striking, given that you know the the U.S. otherwise uh, take a case like South Korea, the U.S. really pushed South Korea to burden share in a way that it, it just didn't toward Japan, and that was despite Japan having a lot more to contribute. Uh, but the U.S. has U.S. has historically had a very ambivalent relationship when it comes to Japanese burden sharing. Uh, in principle, American policymakers want it, but uh, they haven't always been uh they haven't always been willing to accept what a, what a larger
0: Japanese defense role would mean. What can you tell us about the value and history of Japan's neighbor, South Korea, as a burden-sharing alliance? I am here now teaching English abroad.
1: Yeah, so North
0: Korea poses uh I mean
1: North Korea poses a challenge for South Korea that is uh, that is true of very few other U.S. allies, and, and that the, the challenge is this: that you know, in absolute terms, if you look at you know, the, the size of the South Korean economy, the size of the South Korean population relative to North, to North Korea, it you know it it outstrips it dramatically. Uh, in principle, South Korea should be able to fend off North Korea alone. The challenge it faces is, is, is twofold. Well one of course is that North Korea now has nuclear weapons, which which uh which poses a whole different set of challenges uh that may in some ways makes the US role in South Korea more indispensable than it was you know even during the Cold War. Um the other challenge is that even if North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons, uh, Seoul, you know, the South Korean capital, is very close to the to the border with North Korea, and even without nukes, North Korea could inflict a lot of damage on Seoul. Uh, and there's and you know, there's not a lot that uh, in in ways that that wouldn't require North Korea to even take substantial amounts of South Korean territory, right? It could it could barrage the city with artillery from from quite far, and so that that. You know, that uh, lack of depth that South Korea has really makes it, you know, really makes the U.S. alliance essential for it in a way that, you know, you might not expect by just looking at the at the aggregate numbers. Uh, and, you know, not coincidentally, South Korea has historically been, when you talk about burden sharing partners, uh, South Korea has been... You know, one of the consistently one of the allies one of the allies that has been consistently best at burden sharing, uh, dating back all the way to the 1960s when you know South Korea uh, sent a lot of South Korean troops to fight in the Vietnam War. Uh, 1970s, South Korea under a lot of U.S. pressure. Really boosted its military spending quite substantially. Uh, underwent a uh, a massive military uh, modernization campaign, uh, and through the present, uh, you know, South Korea has one of the most capable military forces in the world. Uh, and so, you know, when you talk about burden sharing success stories, uh, South Korea really comes to mind in a lot of ways as as, as potentially case number one.
0: is North Korea then today challenging previous notions about defense and security as both an internal and external threat and does the United States need to involve itself less so can South Korea call on its self-reliance to thwart that nearby enemy
1: Yeah I mean in a lot of ways you know the threat posed by North Korea it's it's different in some ways but but also you know, not not different but but, all, but also can be, I think, compared to threats that other US allies faced in the past, right? So you know, one of the things that makes you know the, the North South Korea rivalry so intractable uh, was you know is similar to what made uh, Germany's position during the Cold War so intractable, right? It was it was a country divided and you know, uh, that, that creates a, you know, that creates a dynamic in which it is, uh, you know, it, it's hard to terminate a rivalry when both countries consider themselves, you know, whether it's West and East Germany during the cold war or North and South Korea today, uh, you know, it's hard to terminate a rivalry in which both countries consider themselves, uh, you know, the sort of legitimate seat of, uh, of the, of the country, uh, now, uh, what makes North Korea, uh, uh, you know, unique in some ways is is in the sort of unpredictable nature of uh, you know of 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 what it does, right? Um, you know, there, there's a there's a whole cottage industry of trying to figure out what's going on in North Korea at any given time. Its conduct often seems kind of erratic. Um, now, it, it, it you know it, it's it doesn't seem to be suicidal, right? So it, you know, d- deterrence seems to, uh, you know, d- deterrence isn't useless in the, in the North Korea relationship by any means. It, it just, you know, it, it's unpredictability makes it, uh, you know, you know, it makes it a difficult threat to, uh, to, to, you know, to kind of keep, uh, to, to keep an eye on, uh, now I, on the issue of South Korean self self-reliance, um, you know, part of what makes South Korean self, self-reliance tough is is the issue I, uh, two issues I alluded to before, one being that North Korea has nukes and, and it doesn't, uh, and the other being that, you know, the, the South Korean capital of Seoul is so vulnerable to North Korean bombardment that that it, it, it makes kind of a conventional defense of South Korea makes it a bit harder. Um, and, and, I, and I think, you know, that's in part why the U.S. hasn't been willing to pull back from, you know, from the Korean peninsula in, in a way that, you know, previous presidents, Jimmy Carter, for example, really wanted to. Uh, you know, every time the U.S. previously has tried to pull back from Korea, uh, you know, the a combination of South Korean protests and concerns about you know the, the looming threat of North Korea have have made that tough. Uh, and that, that's in some ways only more true today with, with with the sort of rise of rise of China, which, which adds a,
0: a different layer of complexity to the to the relationship. In what ways can your book, The Burden Sharing Dilemma, shed light on the topic of burden sharing in NATO in the wake of our present ominous Russia-Ukraine war.
1: Yeah, so the in in the aftermath of the uh, of or you know in the early days after uh, Russia's invasion of of Ukraine, it it seemed to. Portend potentially a, a really dramatic shift in the burden-sharing landscape in Europe, right? Uh, NATO has for, you know, over 15 years now had this sort of notional and, you know, and uh, recently became um, more the notional uh, standard of spending 2% of GDP on defense, right? So it, it, every NATO member is supposed to You know, move toward two percent of spending, two percent of GDP on defense. Now, uh, for most of the you know post two thousand period up through today, uh, most NATO members don't meet that. Right, the U.S. does, the UK does, uh, France France typically does. A handful of other countries often do, uh, Poland and the Baltic countries of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, most notably, Um, but. A lot of countries in Central and Western Europe, uh, including most notably Germany, uh, haven't. And that's been the source of a lot of controversy in the NATO alliance, particularly under, under President Trump. Um, now, in the aftermath of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that seemed like it might be on the verge of change. You had uh, in Germany this, um, you know, the, the Chancellor Olaf Scholz making this uh, proclamation that, uh, Germany had reached a, a so-called, uh, Zeitenwende, right? Sort of, uh, dramatic turning point or sea change in German foreign policy. And he pledged to move toward 2% of GDP on defense. And, you know, uh, fast forward, you know, almost two years later, uh, Germany's not there yet. Uh, the Alliance is kind of moving in the right direction on defense spending, uh, Uh, but it's been slower than I think a lot of folks hoped for. Uh, there's some indication that Germany, for example, will hit 2% at some point in the next year or so. Uh, but it's not clear for how long, uh, there are a, you know, it has a variety of constraints on, on its, on its budgeting process that make it, uh, that make it hard to do without, uh, without offsetting from, from other areas of the budget, um, but I think, you know, kind of stepping back to, to the book, uh, you know, the, the book, you know, in some ways, the, the book would predict a couple things, uh, some of which have come to pass. The first is that, you know, the for all of the for all of the anticipation about greater NATO burden sharing post-Ukraine What makes that somewhat difficult is that, you know, in in a lot of ways, the U.S. has, you know, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has led the U.S. to reassert its commitment to the continent. Uh, And that sort of takes the pressure off of Europe to some extent. Uh, You know, particularly under President Biden, it's hard to imagine that the U.S., would abandon Europe uh, in the aftermath of Ukraine. Now you know that that might change uh, over time as kind of congressional skepticism of the war in Ukraine increases, and especially if, if if you know Donald Trump is reelected. But you know, in part because of the Biden administration's reaction to Ukraine, you know that has in some sense you know that coupled with Russia's. Unexpectedly poor performance in Ukraine that has, I think, reduced the urgency to some extent in a lot of your Euro- European capitals to boost defense spending in a big way, um, and so that that's one thing. Uh, the other, you know, the, the other thing that makes burden sharing difficult in in, in NATO, even the aftermath of a of a crisis like uh, like Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that, you know, a lot of the members who really feel the threat from Russia very acutely, uh, I'm thinking mainly here of Poland, the Baltic countries, uh, Finland now, uh, these are not, with, you know, with the partial exception of Poland, these are not among the alliance's largest members, right? And you know, contrast this with the Cold War when the front line of NATO was Germany, which was one of the, the alliance's largest members. Uh, what this has meant is that, you know, uh, Poland and the Baltic countries and Finland can spend, you know, three, four, five, even more, you know, a percent of their GDP on defense. Uh, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean as much as as if, say, Germany were were to do the same. And you know, because Germany is separated from Russia by uh, you know uh, several countries, uh, you know, most of whom are NATO members. You know that makes it hard to encourage the rest of the alliance to spend more on defense. Right? There's there's some ability of the of NATO members to, in some sense, free ride on the defense of. Of of the eastern flank members of NATO, um, now uh, the one thing that could change this is what happens vis-a-vis U.S. policy in the in the uh, in East Asia and the Western Pacific, right? Uh, presidents since Obama have been touting this pivot to Asia, right, uh, to focus more on dealing with China. Uh, it hasn't happened to the, to the extent that one might have expected, right, much to the frustration of, of a lot of folks who would very much like the U.S. to prioritize Asia. Um, but, you know, over time, I think it's reasonable to predict that the U.S. will slowly but surely um, devote more attention, more resources to to the, the Western Pacific and to, and to Asia. And I think, you know, I think European countries know that uh and I think as the U.S begins to look more and more toward Asia, you, know, you will start to see m- gradually more you more and more U.S interest in burden sharing in NATO, right? Um, part of the problem with with NATO burden sharing is that, much, much in the same way as, as in the case of Japan that I alluded to earlier, that the U.S. often talks the talk on NATO burden sharing, but when faced with actual European proposals to do more for themselves, to you know create a you know uh, a you know sort of quasi-European military, uh, quasi uh, you know United European Defense Fund. The U.S. often kind of balks at that um, for, for fear that you know uh, Europe will, in some sense, decouple itself from NATO or will build up its own defense industrial base and stop and and you know not buy things from from the U.S. Uh, and you know I, I think as the U.S. T- takes China more and more seriously, you will gradually start to see. That, you know, that skepticism on the part of U.S. policymakers decline over time. Um, But it's not a sure thing. Right. These things have have a way of uh, of having a lot
0: of inertia to them. Which of the United States alliances have been called upon most to uphold nuclear burden sharing? Is that even possible, given the U.S.'s preponderance of nuclear stockpiles?
1: Yeah. So nuclear burden sharing has been, um, it, it's been a complicated subject uh, in in really uh, all U.S. alliances, perhaps NATO especially of all. Um, really, it, it hasn't been since the Eisenhower administration that, uh, and to some extent the, the Kennedy administration, but, but, but mainly the Eisenhower administration, that U.S. policymakers, U.S. presidents have Really, uh, really wanted, or, or you know, or, or valued uh, an independent ally, you know, independent allied control over nuclear weapons. Um, you know, there's a period of time where Eisenhower, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of toyed with the idea of, um, you know, uh, and, and for a little while actually uh, implemented a pretty extensive uh, nuclear sharing arrangements in which, uh, which, you know, there, wasn't that much separation between allied, you know, uh, between, between allies and, and control over us nuclear weapons. Um, really though. And, you know, and there was, you know, even some desire on Eisenhower's part to have allies, you know, have their own nuclear arsenals. Um, uh, but really, since then, there, there there hasn't really been a lot of buy-in on the U.S. Part for, for nuclear burden sharing. Um, you know, really starting in the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration, the U.S. line has historically been that, you know, that nuclear proliferation is undesirable, right? That, uh, that the, the U.S. doesn't want any new nuclear states, uh and you know that, that, there there the variety of reasons for that that, that I that I, I won't get into, but you know the the issue of how to reassure allies that you will actually use nuclear weapons on their behalf, uh, given the risks that entails, uh, that's one of the oldest questions in in, in U.S. alliances, uh, and you know th- there the U.S. has found ways of trying to get at this. Um, one of, uh, in NATO, there's the Nuclear Planning Group, which is kind of a, a forum for, uh, you know, determining NATO nuclear strategy, which, you know, given the, yeah, the U.S.'s nuclear preponderance really means U.S. nuclear strategy. Uh, there's a, a NATO has a, has a nuclear sharing scheme on uh, which, you know, the, the U.S., Forward deploy some of its nuclear weapons on al- some allies' territory, uh, but by and large, the U.S. tends to keep a pretty tight hold on you know on the nuclear dimension of its alliances. And indeed, that's part of the reason why the U.S. still has all these alliances and invests so much uh, so much time and resources into them is that they're a vehicle for discouraging nuclear proliferation. You know, the U.S. has uh, historically really discouraged its allies quite hard from pursuing their own nuclear arsenals. Uh, South Korea, for example, pursued nuclear weapons in the 1970s, and the U.S. you know really went came down on it quite hard to try and dissuade it from doing so. And so, you know, NATO burden, uh, you know, uh, rather nuclear burden sharing has always been contentious. Uh, it's you know, it's it's it, it, it's it's a perpetually unsettled issue that occasionally flares up in in a big way. You know, hasn't for some time, but as competition with China and Russia heats up, you know, you, you, you never know. There there could be an, a new a new round of, of debates over
0: the the role of nuclear weapons in in U.S. alliances. Is your focus on diplomatic defense the only goal here? Or can these alliances be political, social, commercial, or even cultural in their adoption of the burden sharing, say through media advertisements or the production of some good?
1: Yeah, so I I think,
0: you know, the the, the
1: book really focuses on on defense burden sharing as a unique form of burden sharing um and, it, and I do so you know largely because defense burden sharing is both so core to how alliances function right there there's few issues as important to to an alliance as who bears the costs of mutual defense and and how those costs are distributed. the other reason is that, defense burden sharing has all of these unique, presents all these unique dilemmas that that I I alluded to earlier, right? You know, the the main dilemma being that the more allies do for themselves in defense, the less control the U S or powerful allies have over them. That being said, uh, you know, the, while the book is primarily trying to explain variation in, in defense burden sharing, other forms of burden sharing are, are, you know, are, are no less important. And in, in many ways uh, what often ends up happening is in cases where the U S is reluctant to encourage defense burden sharing, sometimes it'll encourage other forms of burden share. Uh, so, you know, in, uh, a lot of cases during the Cold War, for example, uh, the U.S. asked allies like Germany and Japan to to provide foreign aid uh, to to you know to 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 uh, both other alliance members and to and to other countries more more broadly. Uh, the U.S., for example, leaned on Germany quite hard to provide a uh, a lot of foreign aid to Iceland in the 1950s uh, leaned very hard on Japan to provide a lot of foreign aid to Southeast Asia uh, you know during the 1960s, 1970s. And you know uh, these other forms of burden sharing, right, whether economic, diplomatic, political, um, in some cases basic military bases, uh, these can be substitutes for defense burden sharing that, you know, are, are sometimes favored when um, when the U.S. is reluctant to approach allies on the issue of, of, of actual defense burden sharing, which you know tends to be the case either when the ally is very small, like Iceland, or when it is uh, very large, like, like Germany or or, or Japan.
0: Can you put on your intellectual history hat and tell us who are the significant figures who drive the narrative of the burden sharing dilemma? I kept thinking about the Henry Kissinger effect from my time re- researching um, the Nerva project and also Nixon's trip to China.
1: Yeah, uh so I, I would say the the two figures you know uh, you alluded to Henry Kissinger and you know the two figures who I think appear most prominently in the book are really are Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger uh, and that's it, partly a function of the time period I'm, I, I focus on in the book uh, I mainly look at the 1950s 60s 70s and you know Nixon and Kissinger really presided over a period of you know, really presided over us foreign policy at a time when the us role in the world was in uh was in flux um and in flux in a way that was really concerning to to a lot of american really uh, really concerning to a lot of a lot of american allies um you know, I I mentioned the Nixon Doctrine earlier, but Nixon came into office at a time when uh, the Vietnam War was going badly, when the U.S. economy was uh, was was it was in a rough patch, right? This was the the period of so-called stagflation, high unemployment and high inflation, uh, and just more generally the U.S. was not as predominant as it had been right after World War II, right? After World War II, the U.S. accounted for, you know, nearly half of the global economy on its its own, right? And that was never going to last. And, you know, over the course of the 1950s, 1960s, the rest of the world, you know, recovered. And, you know, the U.S. was still... The predominant economy in the world, but it didn't have the same level of of dominance. And Nixon, Kissinger really had to cope with a world in which the the US really faced limits on on what it could do. And burden sharing ended up playing a big, big role in their foreign policy. Uh, Burden sharing was Absolutely central to to the Nixon Doctrine, which called for the U.S. to do less uh, and for and for allies to do more. Um, and, and and you know the, their record on actually getting allied burden sharing was mixed. Right? Uh, I mentioned earlier that they you know they got a lot of it when it came to South Korea, uh, as did Gerald Ford, who, who t- took over after Nixon resigned. Uh, less so in the case of Japan. Right, you know they. Uh, the, the evidence uh, there's there's a lot of re- there's a lot of evidence of you know Kissinger led meetings, uh, Nixon led meetings in which you know uh, the you know the architects of U.S. foreign policy go round and round and round on the issue of Japanese defense burden sharing, uh, and ultimately they you know they they sort of kick the can down the road to some extent and. You know that that approach has really characterized U.S. foreign policy toward Japanese burden sharing for much of the last seventy years, and so Nixon and Kissinger really do loom uh, loom quite large in in the book.
0: And were you able to include Nixon and in his trips to China in nineteen seventy two?
1: yeah th- those those uh those play an interesting role uh so you know the the in in some ways Nixon's you know the, the so-called Nixon shocks uh right uh one of them being the uh getting the dollar off the gold standard the other one being his trip to China um really came you know really were kind of part and parcel of this broader shift in U.S. foreign policy that the that, that the Nixon Doctrine characterized, um, you know, during much of the 1970s, especially the kind of you know first half or so of the 1970s, when the Vietnam War was winding down and, and ultimately ended, um, you know, allies really were not sure. What the future held for u s foreign policy right you know the u s was there was a lot of pressure from Congress to pull back from europe from asia the u s public was kind of running low on patience for foreign wars um, and you know there there was real concern that oh uh, well, and in addition to all of that there was there was a big push in the Nixon administration to Pursue detente with US adversaries, right? So namely, first the Soviet Union, but but, but later China. And there was some concern on the part of American allies that this push for detente, coupled with the less appetite for foreign policy and foreign wars at home, would tempt the Nixon administration um, and his successors, frankly, to cut a deal with the Soviet Union, with China, maybe with North Korea, to, you know, essentially you know, cool the arms race um, and you know, maybe get some concessions for the US in exchange for selling allies out. Right? So you, you really saw this fear very intensely in Japan and South Korea. Um, perhaps South Korea most of all, where there's a lot of concern that that the Nixon administration was going to was going to abandon them, um, and, and in Taiwan as well, which of course you know the U.S. ultimately uh, did terminate its alliance with Taiwan, uh, though its commitment has has remained in in other forms. Uh, and you know the, the Nixon trip to China was was part of this. Uh, this was seen as you know, kind of typical of the Nixon administration, right? You know, it, it's going to, it's doing this meeting in secret, right? It didn't consult us. Uh, and, you know, may, maybe it's going to sell us out at this meeting. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, the Nixon trip to China and the Kissinger trip to China that, that preceded it really raised a lot of the same alarm bells that uh, that these broader shifts in U.S. foreign policy did,
0: Will it be possible to predict the next big burden-sharing dilemma of our generation?
1: I think, to some extent, you know, you're you're already seeing it in action today. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, the the overarching dilemma for the United States in general is how to manage its commitments in. Multiple regions that all are demanding U.S. attention, uh, with a you know with, with a a relatively fixed pool of U.S. defense spending, right? You know U.S. defense spending, you know it it increases every year, but with inflation, uh, you know those increases don't go as far, uh, and really as a as a proportion of U.S. GDP. The the defense budget has been relatively flat for for, for quite a while now. And so, you know, the the dilemma for the U.S. is how to prioritize limited resources across Europe, across Asia, and and across the Middle East. Um, uh, You know, uh, presidents since Obama have, uh, including Trump and Biden, have talked about wanting to prioritize East Asia um, you know, much to the concern uh, of of some allies in, in Europe and the Middle East. Um, but you know, events in Europe, namely Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, and you're seeing in a, a bit now with the uh, with the, with the uh, uh, conflict in, in in Israel and, and, and Palestine, uh, events have a way of kind of delaying that, pivot to Asia that US presidents have been talking about for the greater part of 15 years now and the dilemma for the u.s. is where to prioritize US resources and where to instead seek contributions from allies now the, the, the challenge is that uh, allies get to say in this right um, and you know if, if the u.s. you know does lessen Europe uh, you know, it's not a sure thing that European allies will do more. Um, and, it, you know, and particularly it's not clear, it's not obvious that they'll do enough more to offset the reduced role of the U.S. Right? Countries like Poland, the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, you know, really don't want to see the U.S. You know, reduce its role in Europe at all right you know they uh they are very concerned that uh that the rest of europe will not be willing and able to defend them in the same way that the us you know would be able to and potentially willing to um and the same thing is is, is true in asia right um you know there's uh concern about you know, uh, that, you know, the, the U S commitment to Europe and, and what that means for say a conflict over Taiwan with China, um, you know, would. And so, you know, you're facing real trade-offs in U S defense planning. You're facing real trade-offs in terms of which allies to, uh, to prioritize for burden sharing, which allies to prioritize for us resources. Um, you know the, the U.S. is involved in a lot of places and has, has a lot of different allies. So it is, uh, it, it's a challenge in uh, in, in getting getting every, everything
0: in a row. What happened after the nineteen eighties and into the two thousands that you write about in the burden sharing dilemma?
1: So the, the most of the book. Focuses, you know, as you as you alluded to, on the sort of early to mid Cold War period, so kind of from the 1950s through through roughly, you know, the the early 1980s, um, and you know, the, the 1980s saw, you know, it, it, it's in some ways a continuation of a lot of the same challenges as the as previous decades had. Uh, you had big debates, particularly over uh, over Japanese burden sharing. Uh, Japan at that time was, you know, really rapidly growing. Uh, you know, they, they, there was some expectation that it could uh, it could overtake the U.S. in terms of the size of its economy, and you know uh, that that raised a variety of of, of questions about what the U.S. Know view on Japan should be right. Should, should it, uh, should it encourage Japan to kind of do more for itself? Right. Uh, should it, you know, should Japan more or less become self reliant to not not need the U.S. anymore? Um, you know, and and there were some who wanted that. Uh, there was a lot of pressure from Congress to get Japan to boost defense spending. Um, But again, you saw similar debates as you had in previous decades. Uh, The big concern was, well, you know, if if Japan spends more on defense, uh, you know, that means that they probably don't need the U.S. as much anymore. And if the U.S. wants Japan to kind of remain on its side in the Cold War, right, uh, allow allow the U.S. to use Japanese territory for bases, uh, it might have to, you know, be okay with Japan not being as self-reliant as it could be. Um, Now, after the Cold War in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, you you had this sort of odd period where defense burden sharing in the conventional sense of, you know, defense spending, military power, it, it kind of fell off the radar to some extent, uh, because, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, the U.S. didn't really face, and, and for that matter, most U.S. allies, with the exception of, of North Co- of, of South Korea, uh, because of North Korea, didn't really face a huge threat anymore, right, with, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, particularly in Europe, uh, you know, it, it wasn't clear what Europe needed to spend on defense to prepare for. Uh, And and as a result, it was kind of during this period that you saw European defense budgets really just plummet. Uh, European military power, uh, you know, really start to decay. And, you know, this was not a huge priority for the U.S. Um, What became much more of a priority was getting allied contributions for the war on terror. Right, And so, you know, instead of the kind of traditional debates around defense spending that you saw during the Cold War and that, and that you're seeing today in the past you know, 10 years or so, there's a lot more emphasis on getting allies to contribute forces to Iraq, Afghanistan, to cooperate with the U.S. in the war on terror. Uh, and so, you know, tra- traditional defense burden sharing really dropped off the radar in important ways in the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, This was less true in Asia, right, Uh, because of North Korea and and to some extent because of China. Um, But in the last 10, 15 years or so, you know, as Russia has resurged, as China has risen, as North Korea has, has you know has remained uh, an active challenge, you've really seen the return of debates over burden sharing in a big way, right? You know the, the debates that are unfolding today uh, really resemble those of the Cold War much more than they resemble those of the 1990s and 2000s when the big issue was um, was terrorism, Iraq, Afghanistan.
0: And Iceland is Iceland still the smallest NATO member, and what has been its virtue?
1: Yeah, i uh, I believe Iceland is still the lar- is still the I'm sorry the the smallest by population. I don't think it's still the smallest by GDP. I, I think it, it, it might uh might be a bit bigger than some of the more recent addition to the alliance, like. Um, like Montenegro, North Macedonia. Um, but I- Iceland's still a, a, a very, very small country, uh, one of the smallest NATO members. Um, and you know, during the Cold War, the, you know, the, the virtue of having Iceland in NATO uh, was really the, the basing rights it offered. Uh, the US really wanted Iceland and the alliance so that... Uh, so that it could rely on Iceland to uh, host U.S. Uh, ho- host U- host the U.S. Air Force to be uh, an important um, radar facility. Uh, you know, U.S. facilities in Iceland served a few purposes. One was kind of early warning in the event of uh, of a Soviet attack. One was um, anti submarine warfare. Uh, Iceland is positioned in a way such that. Uh, the Soviet fleet in the far north has to pass by Iceland to get to the Atlantic. Uh, and the third was um, that for for a while, uh, the U.S. relied on, uh, on having bombers in Iceland, some of which were, were, were nuclear armed, uh, that could strike into the Soviet Union. Uh, now, that, that motivation declined a bit over time as... Uh, the range of the U.S. nuclear arsenal increased. The facilities in Iceland kind of right. declined in importance over time. Um, and especially after the end of the Cold War, um, you know, the, the, the sort of need for a presence in Iceland declined. And but, you know, uh, that, that, that could come back. Right. Um, I think especially if the, you know, as the competition with, with Russia uh, heats up and kind of remains a live issue. Uh, you know, I, I think you know. I think you, you could see kind of a a return to that sort of importance for for Iceland uh, in a way that you know wasn't as true in the post Cold War period, um, but but definitely was true during the uh, during the Cold War.
0: Is a separate history of troop withdrawals. Possible? Which ones are the most poignant from your memory of troop withdrawals?
1: Yeah. So the um, I, 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 I I'll answer that in a couple ways. Um, first is that in in a lot of ways the the most the most interesting case of troop withdrawals is is actually a case where the troop withdrawals didn't happen, which is uh, which is you know, which is from Europe. Um. It's, it's striking, you know, it, it, in hindsight, it seemed sort of obvious that the U.S. would remain in Europe, that there would be a substantial U.S. footprint in Europe for, you know, for, for, for many decades, you know, through the present. Um, it, it didn't, it wasn't always obvious that that would be so. Um, there, you know, particularly Dwight Eisenhower, uh, you know, really wanted... To pull the U.S. out of Europe at an important important moment, um, you know, Eisenhower's view was that his job was to help Europe build itself back up, uh, be able to stand on its own two feet, and then the U.S. would would come home. Right? It would you know remain in NATO. It would remain committed to Europe's defense. But but you know his view was that if the U.S. still had you know, for much of the Cold War, it had a quarter million U.S. forces in in uh, in, in Germany alone, and, and, and more than that in in all of Europe. You know, his view was that if that was still true, you know, at, you know after some time, uh, then that was a, that was a mark that that he had failed. Um, and, you know, it, it, there's a variety of reasons that didn't happen. Um, one being that. Uh, one being the burden-sharing dilemma, right? The, you know, the the U.S. for a while and you know and and really to some extent always wanted you know and, and continues to want Europe to be able to fend for itself more. Um, but you know during the Cold War, um, the U.S. policymakers were faced with with a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, you know European policymakers. If they were going to be asked to defend themselves, well, a a lot of them wanted to do it with nuclear weapons too. Uh, This was true of of a a lot of US allies, including France, including Britain, uh, including for some time Germany. Um, And US policymakers were never really able to square that circle, right? You know, they simultaneously wanted allies to do more for themselves, become more self reliant, but. Most of them, you know, with the partial exception of Eisenhower, didn't want to see independent nuclear arsenals in Europe. Uh, And as a result, you know, the the U.S. was never really able to do the pullouts from Europe that Eisenhower was envisioning. Um, And and so, you know, the the U.S. troop presence in Europe has been really quite stable over time. You know, it, it declined a lot after the Cold War. But other than that, it's been pretty steady. Uh, there haven't you know there hasn't been a, uh, a a massive u.s withdrawal from Europe except you know during the during the early 1990s um, now in some ways the most interesting troop withdrawals that I talk about in the book are those from Japan and South Korea during the the early 1970s both countries hosted about 60,000 US forces give or take Uh and around the same time under nixon the uh, us pulled about a third of those out um, and you know this doesn't sound like a lot right you know going from 60,000 to 40,000 you know uh, it, it, you know, in, in a given the you know given that you know north korea and china the soviet union had way way more than that right you know th- those 20,000 forces were not likely to be necessarily the difference between victory and defeat. They nevertheless had a, a, a pretty substantial psychological impact on both Japan, but, but especially South Korea. Uh, the South Koreans really saw this troop withdrawal as a harbinger that the US was going to abandon them, that more troop withdrawals were, uh, were forthcoming. Uh, and you know they 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 really saw that as a as a wake up call in in some sense to start to, you know really start building up south korea's own military capabilities including nuclear weapons uh, the you know the south korean interest in nuclear weapons really started in a big way in the aftermath of the us troop withdrawal from south korea and you know the the south Korean's attempt to pursue nuclear weapons was ultimately stopped. Uh, But, you know, uh, it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that the U.S. really didn't withdraw any more troops from South Korea after that. Right. You know, the Nixon administration, the Ford administration, really were thinking about pulling out more troops. But the threat of a South Korean nuclear program... uh, really was a pretty effective deterrent from there being more troop withdrawals.
0: What has the response been from your colleagues or other academics who have read um, your work, such as this one?
1: Well, uh, uh, Early days, uh, early days, at least with the book. Um, I, so far, so good. Uh, looking forward to the, uh, the the first first round of, of reviews, uh, probably sometime in in twenty twenty four. But you know, this so far so good. Um, you know, the uh, I've been I've had the good fortune of you know talking to a, a lot of folks who who work on these issues and. Uh, you know the, uh, the the work of others and the, the conversations I've had with others who who know this stuff really well uh, has informed my work on the front end, uh, and so I, 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 I hope that um, I hope that you know that has allowed me to avoid uh, any 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 serious uh, sins of omission
0: along the way. Are you making any other appearances about your book outside of the New Books Network?
1: Yeah, so I um I should be appearing on a a, a couple more podcasts in the next couple months or so. Uh, so the um uh, I next month I'll be I'll be on the uh, the the John Quincy Adams Society's Security Dilemma podcast, uh, and uh, sometime after that. Uh, I'll be on the uh, the, the, the West Point uh, Social Science of War podcast. Uh, don't think we have, have dates for that yet, but uh, ho- hoping that this is the uh, this is the first of many. the uh, The book just came out a little over a week ago at this point, uh, so ho- hoping to hoping to, to have have more uh, more interesting conversations like like this one.
0: And what are you working on next?
1: so my my next big project uh as I think I, I alluded to at the very top of the conversation is kind of building on the book in important ways so the uh the book is really all about you know the conditions under which the u.s is willing and able to encourage allies to uh, as- assume more responsibility for their own defense then the next set of projects I'm looking at, uh, explores a bit more which strategies are most effective for encouraging burden sharing, right? So that the book puts a lot of emphasis on the role of kind of diplomacy, private pressure, uh, including kind of threats of abandonment and coercion. Uh, what I want to do next is to kind of compare the effects of that kind of pressure, right? That kind of coercive pressure to, other forms of pressure, right? So things like, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically asking allies nicely, right? You know, so did, you know, d- does it work to, you know, um, to tell allies that we will do more if you do more? Does it work to tell allies that, you know, we we really think you should spend more on defense because uh, you said you would, right? In NATO's case, you're not hitting two percent, and so. You know, we uh, we really think you should, um, and so you know, kind of comparing the the role of this kind of um, you know very 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 harsh pressure that I focus on in the book to you know some softer forms of pressure uh, to kind of see see w- which one really is more effective. Uh, also, do, i am doing some uh, some some work on public opinion, so I'll be doing some some survey work in in allied countries uh to try and get a sense of you know what moves the needle on public support for for burden sharing um you know including including coercion but 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 also comparing
0: coercion to to other things any final thoughts for the new books network listeners uh you know i i would just uh i would just say that uh you know burden
1: sharing is is a subject that I don't think is going away anytime soon. Uh, it, you know, it, in many ways, Trump kind of brought the issue back into public attention in a big way. But, uh, it, but I don't think it's going. I don't think it's going away. I, I think you know the the nature of the challenges U.S. foreign policy is facing. Right, combination of particularly Russia and China, but also, uh, also other other lingering challenges, coupled with you know the limits of U.S. power, uh, those are only going to make burden sharing a a bigger and more relevant issue as as time goes on. So I think the I think the importance of of the book and and of the of the issue of burden sharing will uh, it it it's not going to go away.
0: Listen to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Brian Blankenship for contributing a new episode about his book out of Cornell University Press, The Burden-Sharing Dilemma, Coercive Diplomacy in U.S. Alliance Politics. Until next time, we say farewell. And don't forget to subscribe to get more podcasts like this one with your favorite authors to hear more insights into their latest exploration thank you nathan great to be with you